Hello and welcome to episode 120 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray steering the ship through uncharted waters as we once again poke into areas of the game others often overlook. The summer of golf's upon us here in Australia, and while the professional game's rarely our preferred topic, we might toss around what role it plays in the game more broadly. There will be 14 men's and mixed tournaments played in Australia between now and April, and some women's events also to be added. Can't find a schedule on the WPA PGA page, Jimmy. I'll ask you about that soon. What's the value of that beyond just the purses the players compete for? Plus, we've had some listener feedback, which I'm keen to discuss, particularly since it's not entirely agreeable with everything we say here on the pod. That's a much more interesting proposition than when everybody agrees. Before all that, let me bring in my co-hosts to dissect these issues and more is good, good regular co-host. And as far as I can tell, the industry's only golf-specific movie reviewer, Adrian Lowe. Nice dump on Tommy's honour I see in this month's Golf Australia magazine. Thank, thank you, Rod. Yeah, that's a trash movie. But you, know, you should read my review to understand. A dreary biopic... As humorless as a discount, haggis. Yep. It's not going to have them rushing out to rent it, is it? You say biopic, not yeah, biopic. biopic. Well, I said biopic. It sounds like an operation. That sounds like something. Like something you What's get, a biopic? You get that done to you? Not <laughs> have I missed something because I don't do movies? It's a biopic. That's what it, it's a biography movie, and they've created a word for it. Yes, that's infuriating. <laughs> it's the sort of thing that really gets up my nose. <laughs> A dreary biopic as humorless as a discount haggis, so I don't think that's a recommendation. And yes, people should go and buy the magazine so they can read that review and everything else isn't. In and, it. and they should, to get the real story of Tom, young Tom Morris, they should read Stephen Proctor's book. book. Monarch of the Green? Yes. Yeah, excellent book. Representing the youth movement and all that means both for and in the game is Golf Australia magazine deputy editor, all-round golf nut, Jimmy Emanuel. Jimmy, welcome. Thank you. I also knew biopic, so I don't know what's wrong with you. Well, I think we all know what's wrong with me. Well, that's true. I'm old. I was born old. You wouldn't understand that, although you are hitting there. So, you know, ever, you're older. Ever this, increasing. You're older this time than the last time you were here, and that's relentless. It never, ever stops. I think, where did you put it that time, Luke? Like a snake eating its tail? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it's just relentless. That's all, when you leave and you say, some game. Yeah, I'll, see you when, I'll see you when you're older. It's Spo- never not true. Spoiler alert. No one's getting out alive. No. Uh, we'll talk about the professional thing. I'm intrigued by professional golf in its role. We we kind of talk about all sorts of things to do with professional golf, but rarely its place in growing the game, even though it claims to do it all the time. Before that, though, I did want to read out this. Um, I got a DM on Twitter from uh, here talking about pronunciation. The course in New Zealand that's spelled P-A-R-A-M-U. Is it Paraparamu? Paraparamu? Paraparam? I say Paraparam, yeah. I've always thought Paraparam, but I think I've been pulled up a couple of times. Anyway, Paul from Paraparam Beach is what he Oh, did, I thought he wanted the last name withheld. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's not getting that anymore. Very good. I'll edit it out if we need to. Okay. Well, I did run it by. Rod's butchering the pronunciation <laughs> he has at his right. name. <laughs> Payul. Uh, I did ask him if he was happy enough for us to read this out, and he said, no problem. Hi, Rod. I'm an avid fan of your golf podcast, and generally I agree with most things you and Adrian Logue say. That's good life work there, Paul. You're on the right track. However, of late, I've become increasingly annoyed at the rhetoric about members somehow being the problem. Recently, I attended a conference at Royal Melbourne about Alex Russell courses. There were several speakers, some interesting topics, and of course, the chance to reacquaint myself with those wonderful 36 holes, as well as enjoy the famous RM vibe. I mostly enjoyed the, fa- the event, as anyone with golfing genes would. However, there were a few presentations where I felt the speakers, some of whom were paid employees of these clubs, showed disrespect for the various clubs' members as if everything would be great if the members just left us alone. 
I was especially annoyed when one speaker again raised the Mackenzie mantra of committees getting out of the way. I resisted the urge to get up and say that the very members who you are asking to get out of the way are the same ones who pay your wages and have every right to have a say in what happens in our clubs. This is the, I think this is an interesting part here. Furthermore, every great club in the world is a result not of what Mackenzie did nor Russell or in modern times Doke or Core. No, they're the result of forward-thinking members or owners who had the vision to imagine a great course and hire the right people to do it. Indeed, the clubs represented at this conference have, to various degrees, upgraded their courses, going back to what was originally intended and applying modern principles to the layouts. They did not do this because Mike Clayton or OCM told them to do it. They did it because they had the foresight and know-how to understand their courses needed to be maintained and improved. After recognising the need, they went through an exhaustive process to find the right people to deliver their vision. At the other end of the spectrum, I like this bit too, I regularly play courses of less than 100 members with a part-time greenkeeper, often just a retired local, sometimes with sheep maintaining the fairways. Every Saturday, the local farmer tees it up with the local doctor, and they play golf over a course that has no redeeming architectural value beyond bringing joy and companionship to the local community. The membership of these clubs is the reason they exist, and the golfing world would be far poorer for them gone than if some overzealous committee member at a famous club plants the wrong tree on the left side of the 15th, or for that matter enforces a dress rule that might seem anarchistic, yet has no bearing outside of that club. Sorry for the long rant, I enjoyed it. However, I'd respectfully ask that you occasionally praise the memberships of golf clubs, all of whom do really respect their green staff and acknowledge that without the members there would be no Royal Melbourne or Charters Towers. Regardless, I'll still be listening and only occasionally shaking my head. First things first. In judgment. <laughs> first things first. Extraordinary amount of energy devoted to that. So thank you for that, Paul. Uh, that's a well thought out and uh, well thought out and presented email. Like, what, what's your take on that? Are we too hard on members and golfers? Uh, I know I'm in the habit of something <clears throat> that golfers are one of golf's lots, biggest problems. Lots to unpack there. And it, as a meta discussion first, it is a bit difficult in this format, in a podcast, to fully explore an idea, even though you can do it more in a podcast than you can often Twitter. do in Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it is still you, you still are reduced to sound bites and snippets of a thought, and it's hard to actually fully explore all angles of a thought. So I, I think it's a much more nuanced discussion than perhaps we've characterised it in the past. Um, but putting that sort of meta topic aside, um, the reductive line that I tend to go to is that golf clubs get the course they deserve. And I, I stand by that. I think that's true because both the examples in uh, Paul's message there play that out, like the, the little course where the members put all people the effort into it. The farmer they've loves got his the, tractor, etc. got the course they deserve and yep. it's a great, a great experience for them. And Royal Melbourne as well gets the course it deserves for good reasons as well because they're fantastic stewards of what they've got there. They've got something great and they do a great job with it. And I, I was just down there last week and it is a, a great example for all clubs in Australia just the little bits that I mean they've got something great to start with but they manage it better than anybody else on top of having something I was great about to say, they're kind of the Tiger Woods aren't they they've, they've yeah. got the work ethic and the talent but they put in both <laughs> they, they do right. it all they do they do it at the macro level with their big planning and they do it at the micro level with like seeing that a little bunker has shrunk over the years and just extending it out to where it used to be or restoring a green... Off topic, I've always felt that be. they feel a broader responsibility than just 
their own small part in the golf world as well, Royal Melbourne. They see themselves as part of something bigger. I've always had that feeling. Yeah, that's you, right. you, you, you never feel unwelcome at Royal Melbourne, and that's not true of all sandbelt or fancy clubs. From that's right. And yeah, from from top it. down, it's it's every single person in the club. And when we did yeah. that sandbelt invitation last year, and we were just there to write some stories that they weren't really prepared for, they made us so welcome, and everyone was there. And I did something with a member who'd won a C grade club championship, and it was made to get space out there and everything because they felt it was a good story and about golf. It wasn't just about Royal Melbourne. So you're exactly right. Yeah. And it, it is, it's the members, um, but that came from education. It started somewhere with some members taking an interest in the history of the club because it wasn't always like that at Royal Melbourne. You, you had the vanity projects there, like a lot, it still happens at a lot of golf clubs all over the place where some president gets in and has their vanity project. and Broad brush brokes, never, they never like, really cover the things properly, do they? You can't say all members are great or all members are terrible. No, I think, I think you, in between you, is members is a very broad term within a golf club now. And membership has changed more than ever before with what makes up a member. I mean, to my mind, the perfect member of some golf clubs is someone like my old man was at where he was a member for a long time where he just paid his fees and never went and played the golf course because he just gave them a lot of money each yeah. year, did no effect, had no opinions and didn't do any damage. So... That's a great member. That's like a gym member. That's what you want as a as an operations person. But you also want really engaged members who want to look after the, the place. The accountant and have likes it. that sort of member. Yeah, correct. Well, so yeah, from <laughs> the business money, side. But, yeah. but you want really engaged members and everything like that. And then I'm sure there's a lot of engaged members who have different opinions to the superintendent and stuff as well who aren't so appreciated by some but are by others. So. And, and everyone tends to view the game and the golf course through the lens of their own game Great. as well. And, like, there was a um, a comment about – I mean, you know, they, you've always got people who – I look at some of those uh, tea to fairway carries at Royal Melbourne with beautiful heathland covering the ground and, like, a nice network of paths and things, and I think, wow, that looks fantastic. Um, and then I'll go a few holes later and there'll be it'll all be burnt away. And I'll be like, what, what's happened there? And they say, well, you know, we have to just keep doing that to thin it out because the old members can't carry that. You know, it's like an 80-metre carry, but, you know, they can't they can't get over there. So we've got to keep thinning it out. And, uh, and that's oh, okay, right? And, you know, so there's a, a lot of balancing to do with that stuff. Um, but Royal Melbourne does it better than most, and, and they do it at the committee level because they put the right people in the committee who have golf knowledge. They draw from their membership with you know, people who have relevant experience for that. It's not just sort of the loudest personalities. Royal Melbourne aside, though, that's not the case everywhere, is it? Though? But Royal Melbourne's important, though, because that uh, that attitude is infectious. And you see it at the other Sandbelt clubs. It's starting to spread out from there. The other Sandbelt clubs start to go, oh, we've got something significant here too. And they start acting in the same manner. We don't necessarily have that in Sydney. Um, and Paul... You know, it's welcome to come up to Sydney and, <laughs> and see what things are like here. Why would you leave Parabram um, Beach to come to Sydney? Yeah, I know. It's fantastic. <laughs> well, he's got uh, reciprocal membership with uh, the, my club, actually. So <laughs> he's, he's welcome to come up and... We can come and sit with Kimball's number one member, Adrian Logan, talk about what kind of membership um, they've got there. And, uh, and just see, you know, how uh, in a culture of golf in Sydney where there isn't that same infectious uh, desire to restore something great because you know it's not as great to start with in most places in sydney but there is some heritage to our courses here um you know we have the the opposite sort of thing where if you try to do something inventive 
there, there's this talk about getting a double green in at Pimble, right? And I can imagine some of how some of the divisive that must oh, be. Oh, the heads are exploding. But some of the pushback is, if that was a good idea, some the club's <laughs> been around for a hundred years. We would have done it already. Right. <laughs> Which is a staggering, a staggeringly bad argument. To us, but <laughs> yeah. you know, some people might think that's reasonable. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thought, isn't it? In Australia, the game doesn't exist without club members, does it, Jimmy? Really, that's what the the bulk of our courses are built on a, an either private or semi-private sort of model. And so, like all businesses, the members are the customer, aren't they? Paul makes a good point. If you're in the business, I get that it's frustrating trying to manage a golf club and course because you've got so many bosses in terms of the membership plus the board. But by the same token, that's just kind of the deal, isn't it? That's the job. Yeah, it's it just that comes with the territory. If you want to work in club management, managing members is yeah. nobody wants to work in club management. Oh, Jimmy, it well, just happens I'm to sure, some I'm people. Sure I'm some sure. people do, <laughs> yes. but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a huge part of what you have to do, and I, I think it's I think it's important when looking at that membership is taking advantages for the club from the different elements of the membership too. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, I think, I think Paul's right that so many members of less, lesser, not lesser, that's probably not a good lesser word. profile. Lesser profile clubs than Royal Melbourne. You know, I can think of uh, numerous around Sydney where there's a dad's army crew who'd go out, don't get any money, clean up garden beds, do all that sort of stuff so that they save time for the, Greenkeeping staff to focus on the golf course. That member's worth their weight in gold. You know they're paying to come out because they're mm. paying subs yeah. to come out and then look after the place. And when they go out and play, they'll fix extra pitch marks and repair divots and all that sort of stuff. So there's so many members that you take an advantage from. Then there's the one who wants to be on the greens committee or whatever. Um, but there, there's the flip side of I think, I think people like us who sit outside clubs primarily, except for for Logue at Pimble. You, you, your interaction is mostly with uh, profiled members in terms of boards or captains or whatever. And, like, I, I know firsthand of, a, you know, a bit of self-interest at play when clubs have engaged major renovations and the president or the captain has then petitioned to get an extra term in that role to oversee the thing that they started when they've already gone beyond what's allowed within the constitution. Now, the idea is that you've ushered in this great change, you know, let's get in the designer and redo the golf course. Well, you've you've got that expert, like what Paul talks about, you don't need to remain in that role. That's that's not that's not a member necessarily always working towards the best interests of the golf club. And so I think some of the stuff we might say about members comes from specific examples of people. Um, now, that's not true of everyone in those roles. So many of those people who give up their time deserve oh. to be thanked hugely because that's a thankless task and something I wouldn't particularly no, put my hand up a, for. But club captain once said to me, it's a good thing this is a volunteer role because you couldn't pay anyone enough to do it. No, exactly. And, <laughs> that's and, absolutely Which true. is amazing that then to me that people want to go again. But mm. I think there's there's a lack of plaudits in that role and when you're overseeing something like a renovation of a course you know is going to be good so oh. being in that role when it reopens is mm. a nice part to be so um lots of motivations for people aren't there yeah exactly yeah but yeah i think i think again there's it's you're working in such a variation of people with such a variation of motivations for how involved they are as a club member it's very hard to you know it's we we shouldn't say they're all bad and they're probably not all ideal. Yeah, in fairness, I don't think I've said though 
I don't think I've ever said that. No, but I, don't I, I tend to lean towards the cynical, and I th- the majority of golfers I've met over my lifetime, from right from those who give a lot and volunteer a lot, right up to district levels and those sorts of things, I would say more than half their only interest in the game is their own game. Correct. And I don't think broadly that's kind of – it would be a better world if those people were more interested in the game beyond just however many Stableford points they had Wednesday or Saturday. But there's nothing wrong with experiencing golf that way. I just feel like – yeah. But, but I'm more in – I'm more immersed in the game perhaps than some other people are. So mm. that's – and I guess that's perhaps some of it. But this notion that um, great clubs aren't the result of designers like McKenzie, Doak – core. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? I, I, was, I was thinking about Seven Mile Beach. It doesn't happen without Matt Goggin. It, it, from all, everything that we can see, it's going to be a fabulous addition to global golf in terms of golf course architecture and that sort of thing. It can't happen without Matt Goggin. Royal Melbourne can't happen without a membership. He's right about that, is he not? We maybe sometimes get the... Can't don't get, the, don't get the credit wrong, but we don't... Somebody's got to care about it. That's right. right. Yeah. Somebody's, enough to make it happen. That's right. Enough to make it... And golf finds a way. Let's play... Like in the most and remote areas, golf finds a Paul's way. To Paul's point, that's members, isn't it? That yeah, that's members that. that do that. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, I would say I think there's a, there's a wonderful sort of sweet spot of clubs that um, are a great experience, are blessed with amazing land and a really enthusiastic membership, but not necessarily enough money to go on a big tree planting program. (laughs) (laughs) They get the the balance isn't quite there that there's enough money to stuff it up. Um, Forced to keep it perfect. That's right. I think that's (laughs) a lot of country courses in Australia. Yeah, that's right. And they're wonderful golf experiences. And they're so good because – and they go in, they go, oh, yeah, we don't have any money, so we haven't been able to do things like I've talked about of putting trees down there. And you go, no, 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 no. Great. (laughs) Great. You've you've saved something amazing here because you haven't touched it. But Um, Queenscliff in Victoria is one. They do need money and they could do some great stuff with some of of that money. And then it gets into running a golf club. And we've just been down to the PGA show, Jimmy, and there was – uh, a lot of interesting talk there about how golf clubs should run. Um, I I found it interesting that there was quite a lot of focus on not golf, on food and beverage and um, clubhouse facilities and amenities and things like that where, you know, clubs could pour a lot of money into that stuff, into these capital investments. And do. And they do. do. Um, and what what I didn't hear a lot of is the economics of running a golf club over a long time where those capital investments start to deprecate um, or depreciate. And uh, <laughs> Biopic. <laughs> you can mention that in my bi- biopic. Yes. Um, and uh, they, they, the income, the revenues from a golf club aren't huge. They're not huge businesses and they can barely cover their costs most of the time and they're not actually got enough left over to prop up those depreciating assets. So things just tend to disintegrate at a golf club over decades in a in such a slow motion way that people tend not to notice. Like notice, that's right. It, decade after decade, you come back to a golf club and everything seems run down. Yeah. And to the members, it's still the club they love, but you know it, it's it's just degraded over years. And uh, what what a lot of clubs aren't doing is putting aside like a like a kitty that they can live off basically like some sort of a slush fund that they can use to invest incrementally in the club to to keep things going and and you know, it gets back to what we said last week there's bet the company type of actions and a lot of clubs at the end of this life cycle of of gradual degradation 
do a bet the company play and try and redo the whole golf course or sell sell the car park, redo the whole golf course, redo the clubhouse. And it's rolling the dice on a once in 40 or 50 years project. And uh, it's it's a dangerous place to be. Whereas over that 40 or 50 years, they could have been incrementally propping things up and they might have a fantastic historic clubhouse that's a beautiful place to be and a golf course that's still has the same playing values as it did 50 years ago. There's some couple of things intertwined there, though. The problem with trying to run a golf facility partly is the model that we have predominantly here in Australia, which is that semi-private model, the customer, the the paying customer, the retail golfer, as Matt Goggin talks about, I think that you got that from um, – who's the guy did Band of Jeans? Um, uh, the card guy. How can we forget his name? Kaiser. Kaiser. Mike Kaiser. Mike Kaiser. It was his point of view. I was trying to think. Is, is the card guy or the toilet guy? No, the toilet guy died. Yeah, he died. Yeah. yeah. No, the card guy. The retail yeah. card guy. Yeah. Uh, that retail golfer demands a certain sort of experience, experience level, well, particularly a level of condition. That plugs into, I think, a problem with education with golfers. So the notion of people being on committees and you know, the members and not knowing what they're doing, that sort of stuff, if you're going to be on a golf committee, I do think that there should be some expectation that you will try to educate yourself about yeah. the game. That doesn't mean you have to agree with everything that's written in the spirit of St Andrews, but you should have read it. I'm quite happy for someone to read the Spirit of St. Andrews and then disagree with all that stuff in there because they've at least read it and considered that. That's where I think it can sometimes fall down. That's some of the things you were plugging into there, Jimmy, about people getting onto committees and boards and those sort of things. Not not because they've read or immersed themselves in the game and think that they've got a vision that can be better for, but because they think that the bunker on the left of the 16th, you know, they always hit it in there and they don't like it. Those kinds of silly examples. I don't think anything is ever quite that simple, but those sorts of silly examples. So there's a couple of things to go into. So if you're running a golf course and you've poured a bunch of money into the clubhouse and that hasn't gone great, you've got to find that money from elsewhere. So the course condition starts to go down. Now you're on the downward spiral because once the course condition starts to suffer, the retail golfer doesn't visit as much, so you lose another stream of revenue. Now you've got to make more cuts. And that's happened, I think, to a lot of golf clubs or courses uh, over time. But most of it comes back to that education thing, I think. You see in this, and I think you mentioned this earlier, like you see in golf last 20 or 30 years – Lots of people within the game trying to sell everything, and I think Live Golf's guilty of this, everything but golf. Mm. Golf is the one product we never talk about. You know, we've got a great clubhouse, great food and beverage operation. Where we're a wedding venue, we're this and we're that. And the, and golf is almost like a it's an unwelcome elephant in the room. We don't want to talk about the golf. You know, Live Golf's a bit like that. Yeah. You know, It's all about the bands and the music and it's louder and they wear shorts. And at the end of the day, you turn it on, it's blokes playing golf. Uh, and that's not going to change. And, and and golf is as a business seems to be scared of that, the game itself, which is its product. I think exactly right. Quickly, I'd like to come back and get Logue to mull on what his biopic would be called. But, Ooh. yeah, import, important. Oh, greatness? <laughs> path to somewhere? Path to mediocrity? Yeah, path. Um, but, uh, you know, I've got experience managing a golf facility. You know, I did that before I do what I do now. And my most uh, hated part of outsiders coming in and even some people within the golf industry was turning the focus of the business away from the core business. So in in this case, driving range, the driving range is the core business. That's why people are there. To hit golf balls. Food and beverage, golf equipment, you know, all that stuff is an add-on. 
it's great and you're going to make money out of it and you're probably going to make higher profits out of it too, but it is an add-on to your existing business. If you put, you know, let's take an example of you've got a golf course, you know, in suburban Sydney and it's a public golf course and it's got a little pro shop. If you build a cafe there, people probably aren't coming specifically for the cafe. It might be a convenient place for them to go on the way to work or something, but it's the people who are using the golf course. So they need to be impressed with the main core business you're running and then they can spend more money on it. So turning as a golf club or a golf course, you focus away from your core business, which is golf, and putting more money, like Logue says, you're on a hiding to nothing. And it's probably the members who don't notice it so much to talk about that member who still it's the course they love because they're once or twice a week they're there so you know green shrinkage is less noticeable when you're looking at it as it happens bunkers getting rounded yeah exactly it's the the visiting golfer is the most important one to be honest i mean brendan james is a great example of when bj goes around to shoot a golf course it's every year or every two years he will notice stuff because he's looking at it through that lens and he'll say something to a club and it's it's oftentimes the club will go we are noticed Mm -hmm. and so yeah i think that that core business and golf like you say like with live and everything like that is all this everyone's trying to sell the sizzle not the steak and you know, those are great add-ons in a business or in a tour or whatever to make a point of difference. But your core product has to be the focus because you know, golf is why people are coming to your facility. If you've got a luxurious clubhouse that's got the best food and beverage, but your golf course has been cut by four holes and made smaller because of the clubhouse build, people aren't going to come use your clubhouse because they're not going to come use a golf course. And I think that that Trend is moving away a little bit in Australian golf clubs where functions and food and beverage became the main focus for a lot of clubs for a long time. Who probably didn't realise how competitive that market Correct. is. I, I think a lot of people in golf clubs <laughs> yeah. went, how nice would it be to have a wedding? Weddings cost 50000 bucks. That's 50000 bucks we could have. Yeah, yeah. and it's like... you like, 48 to put it on. Yeah, like, <laughs> I mean, when I was working on the northern beaches of Sydney and all these golf clubs, we want to do weddings. Northern Beaches of Golf of Sydney is not short of wedding venues, I'm going to no. tell you. So, in fairness, there are quite a few courses on Northern Beaches whose clubhouses look out over oh, the perfect place for a wedding venue. So, you yeah, can see the idea. I mean, beautiful. Sense. I mean, there's there's an old tea at Manly Golf Club that used to be, oh, I'm trying to remember what hole it was, but there was a tea, and they sort of didn't need it when they did the redesign, and they made it into like a little wedding outdoor photo. wedding any area. It's beautiful. I mean, I've been to a wedding there. It's, it's great. They had a tea party. A tea oh, party. Oh, hello. Yeah. So there's there's you know within reason <laughs> within <laughs> reason there's there's you know mm. good stuff but that's adding to your core business. So if you've got a driving range, you've got to turn over and get new golf balls. You've got to change the mats. You've got to have targets. If you stop spending money on that to spend money on you know extra things outside of golf, your core business, your core customer walks away. So attracting new customers is going to be hard too. They've got it the wrong way around, don't they? Like a great restaurant will bring people in from the street. Correct. And then they're going to see golf. It's, that's not how it happens at golf clubs. And the more they'll come in from the street and subsidise the membership, isn't that more the thinking generally? Not that yes, people are going to come definitely. to the restaurant and then take up golf. That is just, definitely the thinking. It's almost that yep. oh, we're getting some money from the non-golfers yes. to subsidise the golf. There's more of <laughs> exactly. that kind of attitude, I think. And, Rod, and Rod you literally did, was doing yeah, the staff twirling. Even though I don't have a moustache, I, I wish I knew. <laughs> they, um, there's, there's part of that that then 
a club has to have more buy-in from its members and stuff like that because when you have that idea of we're going to make a great restaurant and bring non-golfers in to support things, I've heard and seen a lot of things of people being sort of feeling unwelcome because of the traditional issues we have with people coming into a golf club who aren't used to being in the golf club. Do they have jeans on? Yeah, things like that. <laughs> exactly. Hats. Oh, they had a hat? <laughs> like, so, like, that's, that's again, but that's that's a club that's trying to do something to make a better business but not going all the way through with it and sort of getting buy-in from the members who are crucially important. One of the reasons why, I mean, there's always a place in the business of golf for those from outside, fresh eyes who aren't. But the problem with that thinking is uh, golf is somewhat unique, isn't it, as a business to run. If you're running a golf club, it's not like running a restaurant, even though it's a food and beverage operation. There's those issues to consider. You don't have to consider that in a cafe in Hornsby, you know. <laughs> so someone who's an expert in running cafes and making great money building restaurants and doing that sort of thing can't necessarily just step into a golf club and turn that on. I think it's the same with golf administration. You see it when people come from other sports into golf. James Sutherland is from Cricket Australia. There's a learning process they have to go through about the politics of golf because golfers are, the, are a customer base and we're all invested in that stuff, generally speaking. Not that we think all of it's necessarily fantastic. We had the same when Brian Thorburn was running the PGA. That There's a whole thing to learn. I think a lot of people who come from outside of golf find it incredibly frustrating and stupid and all the rest of it. And that might be true, but it is the product what is what it is and you've got to and, cater to that. And, here's, and at the club level, there's this difference between years and decades of incremental stewardship and the generational projects that golf clubs run where they go, well, we've let this slide for 20... They they suddenly realise, oh, we've let this slide for 20 or 30 years. We've got to do some big project to fix it all up. And then, phew, okay, we can relax. Now it's fixed. 20 20 or 30 years later. Someone else can worry in 20 years' time. 20 or 30 years later. This is all stuffed up. We've got to do another big project. And what's interesting in that is the golf industry doesn't have a lot of um, consultation where... Those people who are doing the once in 40 years thing, uh, it's, it's a once in 40 years thing. Almost by definition, they're not experienced in doing it. Mm. They're, they're members, they're board members who just got lumped with it in their term uh, and their staff that might not have moved around a bunch of courses that did stuff. Some of the staff might have actually had experience, which um, goes back to Paul's email. Some, the staff do have a lot to hi- offer and some clubs hire some very talented staff who they should let them do their job. Um, but I think that what's missing in that equation is this consul- consultation or something some something or somebody to go in and advise a club on how to run an RFP to get an architect, how to engage the architect, how to how to get the right architect for their club, how to allocate funds for a building project as well. What's what's the best way to engage some contractors to do your building and you know what's what's the best approach for your club? from a construction point of view for the golf course or for the car park or for the clubhouse and how to what's the best approach for you commercially for to bring a cafe in should it be an outside business or should it be part of the golf club that that consultant consulting element of helping these um helping these clubs through these once in a generation things that they do because they're not, it's not their everyday business and equally when it's not just the once in a generation thing when it's the ongoing stuff they're also complacent with that or they're just inexperienced with it it's not their day job to go and manage a golf course and notice that a green has started to become a little circle and to extend it out a little bit and have a like constant program of works that they're doing 
So again, they need some consultation there to sort of say, um, you know, these are the sorts of things you should be looking out for. Your mowing lines or your de delimbing some of those trees or something like de -limbing. that. Delimbing. New word. Can thing? you delimb something? Yeah. Uh, I think I think that is where a well-run golf club gives more power to the different elements that work within it. You know, if a, if a really well, a really good general manager has a super good relationship with their super and a good relationship with the pro, head pro and vice versa and all that sort of stuff, they can lean on those people for more detail and they don't need that some, knowledge some themselves. Some clubs need to be taught how to have those relationships. Correct. Exactly. That, that's my observation. A hundred percent. I go around and visit a lot of clubs and a lot of them are like, bored, you need to let the general manager do their job. Or general manager, you need to listen to these parts of what the board are telling you. Um, and general manager, you need to not get the spray can out and show the greenkeeper where the mowing line should be. And <laughs> yeah, and I think and I think a lot of like a lot of general managers or you know people in golf administration are, are of course golfers themselves. So like what Rod always says is they're influenced by their own golf. So it's hard for them not to put forward their own if they're looking at an architect and oh, I played one of his courses or their courses and I liked it and whatever, yep. you know. But then the bringing I've, a bias in there, yeah, I might not be the best architect for that piece of land. Correct, I've might not be the best architect for the personality of the club. Correct, and you know I've worked with management people in golf who no golf background, come from hospitality industry, who are great because they bring that unique knowledge base, but they're also very. Uh, willing to use the knowledge base of the golf people they employ. And I've worked with people in the same sort of mould of hospitality who don't want to listen to the golf people, think they know better, and it's a disaster. So, you know, because, like, everyone thinks they're a genius and they could take over the club and solve it too. I think that's part of it. But <laughs> Note the three of us sitting here. Correct, yeah. But, so, like, as in, like, I, I, I didn't have as deep an understanding of outside industries of, like, for example, how many pubs in sydney the kitchen is separate from the pub because there's been a person in charge who's worked out that's the best way for them to secure themselves financially and Dr. i don't preferred will sell the drinks yeah correct <laughs> exactly right it. and um and so you know golf clubs can benefit from that knowledge of looking at it from that sort of <clears> standpoint but and like a pub jimmy is it not true that by far the worst business model in the world is a club you kind of hamstring yourself from the start, don't you? The notion of a club should simply be, and this is how many of the great clubs work, there's 100 members. It cost us $100,000 to run the club this year. Everybody puts in $1,000. Oh. And if next year it's 200000 well, you put in 2000 But we've got Just into a... Increasing subscription fees is the answer to everything at golf clubs. And I, I think that should be completely turned around. Like, their whole purpose should be, like, how, what can we do this year to reduce subscription fees? You want to grow golf? Reduce subscription fees. Mm. Like if if everybody like, there's a few different ways of looking at this. But if you started with Frankston Golf Club, where the overheads are incredibly small, and the members pay four hundred bucks a year for one of the greatest golf experiences in Australia, with a fantastic clubhouse, great golf course, um, just unparalleled. Really angling for membership there. <laughs> That's not going to happen. But really uh, you start with that. Then <clears throat> challenge everything. People, people, a lot of people. That's not for everybody. People want a nice restaurant. They want you know food served to them that they don't have to bring themselves like they do at Frankston. They want uh, you know somebody behind the bar who can pour them a drink so they don't have to you know bring their own bottle of wine or something. So things have to be added, but resisting those things and making them um, making them work in the most effective way. Like you don't. It's here's a, a really simple analogy. 
putting paths into a course, people think, oh, we've got to add some concrete paths because we've got buggy, we've got um, we've got carts. Um, so they think, oh, we've just got to cut, we've got to concrete the whole course. We've got to have continuous concrete. Start at the first tee and so finish at the eighteenth. There's this dogmatic decision of like, okay, paths check. We're going to concrete the whole course. No, the the way to do that more cost effectively is to only put a little bit of concrete where you need it, where the high traffic areas are, and the it's turning it's actually around wearing the out. Gardens, yeah. that's where you need the concrete. That's right. So same with food and beverage operations. Same with everything at the club. Like actually, just don't don't make a dogmatic decision as like. <laughs> did you just reference the? The, the rare figure eight. The, the figure eight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The double yeah. internal oh, garden. Oh, I've not seen the double. That's fantastic. Yeah, double, double internal garden. Lovely. Double turning circles. Well, we scoff uh, at that, but... The, the, we call that the infinity, think that's the infinity turning circle, actually. That's, uh, of course, because it's the... If you look at it the right way. Um, but anyway, that's, that's an illustrative point. You apply that to everything. Food and beverage, to the restaurant, um, to the way you do clubhouse extensions or clubhouse renovations... You don't necessarily need to take a dogmatic decision. It's like Peninsula Kingswood did an incredible clubhouse with a ho- with you know accommodation and everything. Therefore, that's what that means. We've got to do all of that. Just turn all of that on and find fifty million dollars to do that. I think I, I really agree with that point. I mean, you talk about Frankston now. Frankston's a unique example, and most of those members who enjoy that bring your own food and whatever, they're probably a member somewhere else where they get the opposite. So it's a unique thing, but. In Australia, we probably don't have the options of different forms of golf clubs because they've uh, so many of them have followed the same paths or attempted to follow the same paths to what they see as improvement. And the way to get there is increase subs. Correct. Exactly right. And that situation is just becoming... That's fine. It's becoming in, America. But it's yeah, fine in right. boom times. <laughs> in boom times, you can have that. When there's when there's more people want to join the golf club than there are spaces, spaces at the golf club, increasing subs is a perfectly sensible business decision. Yeah. I, I think we just, we, as an industry, we keep looking at membership numbers as the barometer of how well we're doing. And we go, oh, you know, 9% growth or something and congratulate ourselves. When at 9%, 9% growth in the face of massive increases in subs is uh, I, I think that's a terrible thing some people might think it's good because oh that means you know there's nine percent more people paying more money across the whole country so, so is there pouring more money into but is there a place for club membership then in the future but yeah, need if, to move away from a membership model well it will if we end up like America where subs start to cost you know forty thousand dollars a year and joining fees are in, the hundred, in six figures there's plenty of golf in America plenty of people too there's quite a uh, well. There's a big divide. Don't don't get me all like lefty here, but there's a big divide between people who can join a I'll private just call club. You a shard, <laughs> people who can <laughs> join a private club in America and who can have access to public golf. Um, and public golf is at risk in America as it is here. So yeah, it doesn't. I don't think that does golf mm. any favors having membership prices increase. But if you that if exclusionary you could, model is problematic. I think yeah, where you, you exclude people based on cost, like have a thought experiment where you just lowered. Um, subscription rates across the entire country by 15%. Um, your numbers next year for membership would go up quite a lot. And if that's our barometer of how we're judging our performance Can't have as a members. golf industry. There's a limit to how many members you can have. So you can drop subscriptions to over get the club oversubscribe. Have you really helped anybody then? Yeah, so there's su- supply and demand for sure. But I think the market, you get into this market with golf clubs where it becomes like a like a Veblen good, like a you know uh, luxury watch or something like that, where the price can just be increased and people don't care. And I think that's a bad thing for 
for most golf clubs. Some golf clubs, yeah, let it go. Like, just let it, let it rip. Have the price go up as much as you like. Let it rip. Um, but but there's a, a large sort of slice of middle-tier golf clubs in Australia who I think are going down that path, and it's not the right product for that pricing model. Mm. They shouldn't be letting it rip, but they're following along clubs that let it rip with the price. They, go, they just get dragged along with it because the whole industry does that. It's interesting stuff, isn't it? Yeah. Interesting stuff. And again, not much of it to do with actual golf. (laughs) There's still a minority of people who even think about golf courses and the way they're laid out and what makes them interesting and enjoyable and fun to play. I think when you look at the whole industry, the pull of these influential clubs that are um, aspirational, you know, your Eleonora's and and the Australian and those sort of aspirational clubs that most, if you survey most golf members in in Sydney at least, those are the clubs that they will mention. They won't mention New South Wales, which is probably better golf experience. They'll mention the Australian and Eleonora as like, oh, yes, that's the pinnacle of membership in, in Sydney. And taking nothing away, they, those clubs give their members what they want. I think yeah. it's, they do a very good job of giving their members what they want. But those clubs have this outsized influence over the massive mid- middle tier of clubs in Australia where all the middle tier clubs think, oh, we've got to behave more like Eleonora and the Australian to attract members. And so they drag the prices of the whole golf industry up whereas the Frankstons don't have any influence at all of dragging prices down. So, Very interesting stuff. End, end podcast. Yeah, I wonder if Paul had any of that in mind. Thank you, Paul, for uh, writing in. If you'd like to hear a diatribe of that sort of nonsense, you can write into us as well and uh, take a peek into the things. The summer of golf, Jimmy, I did want to talk about this. I wrote yep. something about this this week. I need to remind myself every year, because we go for so much of the year watching golf just on television, the real joy and value of professional golf is the ability to just actually go out and watch and hear and see it. Is it not? Do enough of us do that? No. Simple answer. No. Uh, you know, I, I travel around to more, probably more events of the of the Aussie summer than than most others in the in the golf media part. The ones that work for the organisations, and you don't see enough people who you know maybe you're in the area or you interact with on social media or whatever who don't come down and take full advantage of what's in front of them. Um, this particular summer is a really unique chance for people to course. see something special. Yeah. So you mentioned 14 events in Australia. There's two in New Zealand as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, you know, we're going back to... We don't have any listeners in New Zealand, so I didn't want to mention the money kidding. No. I don't know if we've got news. Paul. Paul's in New Zealand, <laughs> apart from Paul. But not only have we got more events, we've sort of got this little run where uh, for the DP World Tour, and who are co-sanctioning the Australian PGA and the Australian Open, their case against their players that were suspended before the Scottish Open but then got a stay of a court thing until February, that case will come up then. There's the live players. Live players, I should mention. Yeah, sorry. Like Adrian Odeigi, who won. Who won last week. That's right. And Ian Poulter and Lee Westwood. Um, now, that court case in February will decide whether live golfers are banned or not from DP World Tour events. Bit of a... Keith Pelly probably sits there and goes, is it the worst thing if they're not because I'll get them coming along, but whatever. Uh, now, that influences our tournaments given they're co-sanctioned. We don't know definitely. We, ha- we would have to get clarification once something like that happens, but the Australian PGA and Australian Open has co-sanctioned European DP World Tour events, whether they fall under the bans and suspensions of live golfers because Australia has some of our highest profile golfers who are playing live golf. So this year, we're fine. If the DP World Tour successfully bans on the back of that February court case, next summer could be vastly different. 
So then the Australian PGA would have to make it, or PGA Tour would have to make a decision about whether they continue to co-sanction. Well, it, it, uh, whether or not a co-sanctioned event falls under the same ban as a DP World Tour event is something that we'll have to get into, and that's 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 going to be a, a thing for the future. But to the relevance of, of this now, Can summer, Cameron Smith play the Australian Open if it's co-sanctioned by the DP World yeah, Tour next year? That's next the question. That's the question. And, and the Australian PGA is going to want to say, oh, yes, most yeah, definitely. Well, that, I mean, that's exactly right. So that's where this summer is... Australian PGA and Australian Open have announced a lot of good Australian players. Um, there's, you know, and there's more to come. Uh, but you're getting a chance that a lot of people around the world won't get to see our best live golfers and our best PGA Tour players and our best DP World Tour players playing in one field on some great golf courses too, mind you. You know, we've got Royal Queensland, Victoria and Kingston Heath are the two big ones. Then back to the point of going to watch, shouldering on those, you've got all the smaller events for TPS lack of events in suburban places at Rosebud and Bonnie Doon that's the golf watching experience if you're going to go to watch the golf and you can only go to one whilst I wouldn't recommend against the Australian PGA or the Australian Opens which will be a fantastic event Rod Morris recommending you only go to one tournament go, yeah. <laughs> that's right Rod Morris hates <laughs> golf uh, go to one of the TPS events they yeah. are you, you, and the Vic Open is Vic Open Vic walk, Open walk yes. the fairways up close to the play it's an extraordinary experience no, best, ropes no best spectating mm. experience in golf it's it's like watching golf in the sixties. Yeah, yeah, and and even if a TPS event isn't near you, the tour is going to mm. so many different. You know, you've got Kalgoorlie and Perth, and then they'll be at Moona Links, and then they go to Nudgee. You know, they're moving around and Warrigal. You know, courses that Cam Percy courses country, that you like, might have played too. Correct, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So I mean, that's one of the best experiences. I remember being a kid and going and watching tournaments at places I'd played golf, and you get that full appreciation Concord of what's was going always on. the one. For me. It was like, yeah. Wow. I, like, you know, Watch I could, it hit it on the first hole all the way down there near the green and go, wow. Yeah. <laughs> and they able to do that. And it, yeah. it, it's amazing. And the TPS, as you say, is great because then you get that junior element mixed in mm-hmm. as well. And you get to see some players who you won't likely have heard of before. And a couple of years you'll go, I watched that kid play when they were 17. And man, it was impressive then. If you don't go and watch Jeffrey Guan this year, that's yep. on you. Correct. Jeffrey Guan is going to be a superstar of the game. He's a he's not Tom Kim, but he's that kind of player. He could do something really special really quickly. Yeah. So there's and that idea of going and watching it is there's so much more to it than just being there, seeing it, hearing it. Because you get an appreciation of every other thing that's happening in a golf tournament. You know, you, you can pick up on the surrounds, on the conditions, on everything like that and and fully experience what it means to play tournament golf um, because it's it, it gives a new appreciation of how good these players are and everything they do. And also just my advice would be if you go, go hang around the driving range and go hang around the chipping green. Chipping green. green. And watch what's going on. I'm, I, I sat there, I've told this story a million times to people, at Lake Karen up during the old World Super 6 Perth. Late one afternoon, I'd finished up writing a few stories. I was just out having a wander. That's what I love to do on practice days is late in the day, early in the morning. Number one on a Wednesday afternoon, see the, who's the last person on the range grinding because it's a good indication they're probably it's not going to be playing the weekend. <laughs> or it's a good indication that Peter Fowler's in the field. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. But well, late one afternoon, wandered out. By the chipping green, Kiradek Afabanrat and Brett Rumford were having wow. a chipping comp. Wow. I've never seen something like that in my life. Those are two of the best wedge 
short game sort of exponents, mm. you will see. The thing where he jams the club down. The tie spinner. Yeah. yeah. One of the, like, unbelievable <laughs> golf shot. And then Rumford is. Oh, he's extraordinary. Like, it's crazy. Other so, pros gather around to yeah. watch him. Exactly, exactly what happens. So every guy that is there working on their game with something in their mind stops and goes, hey, i got to watch this. Yeah. And they've got this little following. It's like the stories of Hogan when Hogan would hit balls and they'd all come and sit and watch. You can do that yourself. You know, if, you, if you're interested in putters, go hang by the putting green and see some of these amazing putters that these guys have or the chipping green bunker or practice fairway. And those smaller events, you've got more access to those with ex, ex, you know, some, some that fall outside that because you can't get to the driving range or whatever. But like the Vic Open is a great one. You can just wander down there and stand on the back of the driving range and move over to the chipping green. And um, I got Brett Rumford at the Vic Open last year. Yeah. I was just, I turned around and there he was. And I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> okay. And yeah. I got the camera out and took a bunch it's of It's cruel, isn't it? But when you follow Brett Rumford in a round of golf, you kind of hope he's going to miss greens because <laughs> you just want to see. Because <laughs> you can get it up and down from anywhere. You, you feel bad about it, but you kind of don't. Because He's not even thinking about flubbing it. He's no, standing over <laughs> it. I, I don't think that's it. entered his yeah. mind for some time. <laughs> but so, then on the, I think, importantly, on the back of the summer of the PGA Tour of Australasia, which is as good as it's been, we're very likely to have a live event out here in April. Um, and I th- Where's it going to be, Jimmy? This is the speculation. I have any inside mail now? <laughs> I mean, I've heard of five different clubs claiming to be the one in different dispatches over the last little while. And it may well be that each of them have been told that they are the one. It's quite possible. Yeah, I, I mean, I heard I heard at one stage that there was a sit-down meeting with the people from Live Golf who'd come out here to talk about it. It was taken as very positive by the club and then off Live went and there was no more communication. Yeah, so if you don't hear back, you, you don't hear back. Got it. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> if I'm Live Golf, that's not bad because it's generating a bit of rumour mill of, oh, this place wants it, this place wants it. Suddenly you're in the news. But hmm. Australia will be an important Live Stop next year because there is more Australian golf fans who are sympathetic to Live Golf than there is in a lot of other countries around the world. I believe South Australia is a likely landing spot. Seems it, unusual It choice. will be interesting then to see how many of those people on social media and other places who tell you they'll be running to go watch the first live event in Australia actually go. So where, the, where Australian golf benefits is we're going to have these smaller events, go and watch them. Aussie Open, Aussie PJ with our best players for the first time in a long time and more money and all that – Things like all abilities championships mixed in as well. You know, TPS is good. And then on the back of that, live if they keep making the players play every event, we're going to have Phil Mickelson play his first individual event in Australia, to my Ooh, knowledge. Now, did he not <clears throat> play an Australian Open in the late 90s? Oh, I'm with you on this, and I've never been able to get that. I thought he played. No, no one played that. No, match they, match they, match they match went match down to 102 <laughs> in the world rankings to fill the field oh. for that. I'm surprised you didn't get a seat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. Uh, <laughs> I've seen him chip it around Metro. I'm actually not you, surprised. My instinct is that if, they, if Liver are looking at Australia, that they'd more likely end up in Queensland because the pull of Cam Smith there in particular is enormous, much more so than Leishman in Victoria mm-hmm. or yeah. just golfers in South Australia. But Cam Smith in Queensland is a hero. Yeah. Like, they worship him up there. and So you would think that that would be... And and to throw on top of all of that, you've then got Sandbell Invitational, mm. which last year was the standout of the summer. And we're, it's going to be better this year. I've had numerous conversations with the people involved. Um 
And then you've got the Cathedral Invitational, which is the two days after the Australian Open, which is a unique new thing at Cathedral Lodge. Is that open to the, the public? Can you go and watch? On the second day. So the first day will be closed and no TV. The second day. Of course, will be some interest to. Correct. To the, the second course. day is going to be open to fans and it's going to be on Fox Sports right. as well. Um, so, you know, that's. We've got a really positive sort of summer upcoming um, from all different angles. Agreed. Uh, For for the first time in a long time, it really does feel like a comprehensive package of proper golf. And and it's a chance for Australian players to make their mark. You know, the Andrew Martins and Pikeys and those sort of guys can, you know, have a tour where they can have a real run at a bunch of tournaments and get themselves on TV. All of these are televised, by the way, aren't they? That's right. Correct. Is even the Cathedral Invitational, is that televised? Yeah, second day. Amazing. Yeah. Oh, you just said that, didn't you? Um, (laughs) Yeah. I mean, those guys can really make them up. They can be the next generation of Terry Gales and Ian Stanleys and Bob Stantons. Cam Cam Davis was a nobody, quote-unquote, when he won the Australian Open in 2017. Cam Davis is now a PGA Tour winner and is playing the Sandbelt Invitational, which is good on him. And and another big shift for the tour out here is they've switched to a points-based system for the order of merit, which is rewarding those players you're talking about, Logue, whereas we had this issue forever that, like last summer – the Australian PJ was worth so much more money than everything else. So Jed Morgan wins that at the start of the summer. He wins the order of merit. <laughs> yeah. Now, that's not such an issue because Jed's a young guy coming up and we all go, good on him, good luck to you. But when you play the Aussie Open and the Aussie PGA this year and they're worth so much more and let's and Adam and Cam and Leash come back and they play those events, they dominate and then the other guys can't get make tail or get up there and get European tour advantages or, de, or Corn Ferry tour, Q schools, etc. This point system is hugely important for that next level of player to make their mark. And in my opinion, it'd be great, you know, Aussie Open, Aussie PGA, that you, know, you got those big names in the mix. But one of those players you mentioned is right up there. That's what I remember oh, about will. golf. And, and one, one of them, them one of them, you know, gets up there and wins a golf yep. tournament. That's the, that's the greatest advertisement for what our summer of golf can yeah, be. Yeah, it is, yeah. Um, but you're right on the WPJ tour at this stage. I have not seen a schedule for this summer. Um, I don't believe, but uh, hopefully there's something soon. Oh, I'm assuming they will be. they've got a New South Wales Open. They've got the Bonville tournament, um, which I'm pretty sure has still got another couple of years to go. Uh, it was a five-year deal three years ago, and they missed you. I don't know what the deal is. And then Athena and all those sorts of things. And um, yeah, uh, we kind of got away from what I was sort of trying. The point I was trying to make. Golf of all the sports, Logue, is the worst televised, is it not? It Televised golf is completely... It's a shambles, it's isn't it? It's totally... Well, you can't yeah. understand it unless you can't you make sense golf. of what's going on. And yeah. I liken it to the AFL. Hmm. If you've never been to an AFL game, you would turn on the television and go, what a disorganised shambles. How could anybody follow that? If you've been to the ground and watched AFL, then you see it on the TV. Now you have an understanding of what's happening off the camera. Golf's a bit the same. I've often wondered, and I've never managed to do it, if you took a non-golfer to a professional golfer, someone who'd never played golf and no real interest in it, take them to watch Adam Scott for five holes. Yeah, at, at the, the wind, event. the distances, yeah. the people, being able to actually see what the players are facing. Now, that, that, that six iron that lands 10 feet from the hole on TV, well, you see 10 of them today because there's a field of professional golfers and 10 of them are going to hit great shots. But to be there, see everything that goes in beforehand – then the swing, then the contact, then the flight, the turn on the ball and the watch. It's an ext- it's a, it's magical. 
when yeah. you watch it in person. In person as well, you understand that, oh, they're playing this across, if you're a non-golfer, you, you understand, oh, there's 18 like playing fields yeah. here, which is extremely hard to cover on TV. Like you, the cricket, you can just leave it on yeah. and it's- Football. It's synchronous as yeah. well. Like it's all like- It's linear. One event happening at yeah, one it's time. Linear. Yeah, it's linear. And golf, you don't get that. But I, I, one of my sort of fonder memories of- uh, watching golf as a kid is how the ABC used to just set up a tower behind every green, mm-hmm. and which is probably way too expensive to do these days, but uh, they used to do that back in the 80s. They used to have utes with the cameras. Yeah, and and they'd, they'd have those as well. But, you know, often they'd have a tower behind every green. Yeah, that's true. Um, and the whole golf course is wide for, like, the Victorian PGA or something like that, even sort of the second-tier events. And they'd, um, they'd just... The groups that come out in the morning, especially in days one and two, you'd see everybody coming through the first, second and third. So watching that coverage back then had this linear sense to it. And then once there's a bunch of people out on the golf course, they'd start to break it up like a more traditional coverage. A bit like the Open every year, isn't it? When you, you watch yes, the first tea right. time of the day, then you watch the second, yeah, the third yeah, and the yeah. fourth and the fifth. And there's something relatable about that, that, that sort of wars wears a groove in your mind and you mm. think oh how's every every successive group going to get through this challenge this obstacle course of the first second and third or fourth and you start to get a sense of what the rest of the course looks like so i want to and you know live hasn't it's a mess watching the um shotgun start in live like I, I was really intrigued to see whether that would have a similar but you were pro the shotgun start. I, I kind of like it for the first two rounds just because it gets a, i don't watch the first two rounds anyway of most things <laughs> but um <laughs> um i think that's a big mistake for the final round but um it's even more of a mess it's so disorienting seeing everybody out in the course at once you don't get a chance for any of those holes and the shot challenges to groove in your head but with the other thing with the coverage, and we don't get this with the TPS events and everything where it's all on the ground cameras and stuff. They haven't really worked this out. But I, by chance, I was with my daughter the other day and we flicked on the LPGA coverage. And they, and you rarely see this, but they had Jodie Hewitt-Shadoff, who had uh, like a career driving week. She was like off the tee. She mm. was amazing. Um, they had a camera set up behind the tee and she hit a tee shot and somehow, miraculously, they did this amazing ball follow from behind from the behind. team. And you could see the shot trajectory without, tra- without, the, without tracer. the tracer. It, it looked so much better than what you get with the tracer. You could see the ball curving through the air and make a, a, ca- a covered a bunker that came across the fairway. It looked amazing. And you could see the ball run out. And there was a bit of shape like to it. Like being there. It was just like being there. And there was a bit of shape to it and everything. And my daughter looked at that and she goes, wow, that's a it's a, that's an amazing golf shot. And Is that I enough to the shock her out of the trauma of you taking her to a winter <laughs> clinic at 6am? No, no, she's still a Some years player. ago. Um, but uh, I thought to myself, if golf could get that right, like I think we're really, really reliant on shot tracer now. So I'm concerned that that technology of being able to follow a ball from behind the player. I wonder whether that was some sort of new camera. Because television relies on the technology Mostly. advancing of cameras and microphones and things to make it better. So the shot tracers become the go-to. This is how you show it. But you're right. If you had a camera that could see it like the human eye from behind, yes. because if you haven't been to the golf and you're planning to go to a TPS event or something this year because we've said that you should, go and stand behind the player mm-hmm. and watch the shot. There is nothing like it. You'll, If you see something really good, you'll never forget That's right. that, yeah. that moment in time. Get a feel happened. for like, oh, that swing produces that shot shape and everything. Like I've seen Jody shut off swing on TV for years, but I've never understood, okay, that swing produces that shot shape and – that trajectory and it looked like it was an absolute bullet. Like she's, you know, 
real. It was just a flasher. It was amazing yeah. display of shot making. I think that idea of taking someone who's not a golfer to the golf. We should is, do that this year. That's a good story no, for the it's mag. It's always enlightening when they stand there and someone hits like an amazing shot like holding one up against the wind a little bit lower and it sort of fights through it and the lands as well and it feeds down to the hole and everyone goes oh yeah and there's big applause and if you've got a non-golfer with you and go what's the big deal aren't they supposed to do that <laughs> and you just I, sort of turn around and go mm, well, uh, yeah, yeah I, I suppose so <laughs> like like the or the oh that was a bad putt when it like just misses by <laughs> how, like a couple how inches how did he miss that like, <laughs> like well yeah I mean like I think that's. Have you have you taken an on golf to the? I never yeah. have, but I've yeah, I have absolutely. It. Yeah, I have. Um, that's the reaction you get. Yeah, a lot of the time it is. Um, wow, you, you, it's mixed. It depends on who the person. I was going to say you might be hanging with the wrong non golfers. Well, I hang with a lot of non golfers because otherwise that would mean spending time with you two outside of this. So, uh, but it's Rod's kind of a non golfer. Yeah, Rod's kind of a non golfer. <laughs> or a podcast I'm kind of golfer these days. Half the time, yeah. but it's um, you get varied responses depending on that person and how much sport they've played and what how much how much elite sport they've watched too. But I think that's the case when you take anyone. I I took Dad to a baseball game at Fenway Park a couple of months ago. Now, he's watched a bit of baseball, but he's watched constant sport his whole life. That's what he does with his time. He'd not been to a baseball game in person. He hadn't watched a lot of baseball. So his opinions on what was happening was very different than what I would have thought someone like that who watched a lot of sport would be. Um, And I think that's what you get with golf is – the sound of impact impresses a golfer because they know the difference between a bad and a good sound. You go to a golf tournament having never experienced golf yourself, you don't hear too many bad sounds. True. Um, you know, and if you've watched a little bit of golf on TV, you maybe think the players are worse than they are because you don't just see highlights of putts going in and good shots because you're not just watching the leaders, you're watching everybody. Um, so it's... Um, One of the joys of live golf is the bad shots, don't you think? Absolutely. Watching pros hit horrific golf shots. Going on. And they hitting, argue. Hitting, then hitting I could a, do that. Seeing how amazing many, recovery yeah, shots. That's right. Too. How many bad shots does it take them to hit to actually make a bogey? It's so... Re- like it. They rarely hit, they rarely hit two bad they shots. They rarely combound, compound right. a problem. They, in fact, they, all hit bad they usually shots bounce back and they almost amazingly and in, avoid bogey after a really bad shot. I don't even see that bunker. It's like it wasn't <laughs> even there. In all the in all the caddying I've done at tour events, one of my favourite memories is Logue snapping a picture of me not really caddying at the time, but caddying for Aaron Pike at Bonnie Doon and us convinced, you know, needed to make up a couple of shots. So hit driver on eight, I think, is a short par four up the hill. Um, and blowing it so far right, it was in the greenside bunker 17. of 17. Then going through the process of what are we going to do because there's no yardages out there. There's no, You don't get that from if he just hits a good driver and hits it in the middle of the green and two parts, it makes birdie and we go to nine. Mm. That process and the... the, and the he still gave him the wrong club and he <laughs> had to carry his clubs up the hill. <laughs> and there's a photo the 17th to prove it. I didn't give him the wrong club. That is a falsity. <laughs> he mishit that bunker shot. But the, there was more people started to gather around when that started to happen going, whoa, because they don't think golf pros hit that bad of shots. They, they do. You know, and not every one of them hits them that far, right? I mean... But <laughs> and that was a special... That was especially, especially... He asked me back the next year, but it... It's um, that's a fascinating thing to watch. Um, that's the golf. If you're a golfer, that's what you want to watch. It's like watching Brett Rumford miss a green. It's like, oh, now we've got a show, and we get <laughs> and we get less of it with the equipment as is now because there's less of those really bad ones. So when you get that chance, and 
the players love it because they get to embrace their creativity, which is their strengths. Min Woo Lee is one of the best to watch oh, doing that. If you get yeah. a chance to go out and watch Min Woo. He's magnetic, isn't he? And and watch him miss one off the tee and yep. then watch watch the mind start the to go. The deeper in the woods that he is, the more interesting it gets. It's, 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 it's <laughs> a bit like Bubba Watson effect, isn't it? Yeah, Tiger uh, was the same. Bubba, um, Stand, in the, stand in the middle of the fairway with a nine on and they're like, nothing interesting. Put them ten yards into the behind the trees. Oh, now I've got to do something. Or the Watson shot on the tenth at the Masters. You know, that's right in his wheelhouse. And like well, Lucas Herbert's another one of those sort of guys. Whereas Cam Davis, Adam Scott, they're the ones you want to watch from the middle of the fairway because you just want to watch those goals. The best view of all is, of course, mm. behind the player yeah. with ten rows of people in front of you. So all you see is the, the oh, hands. The sw- the, absolutely, that is a, the ultimate thing, isn't it? Where you just see their hands emerge at the top of their swing, and then hands and sound. Yeah, it's mesmerizing. <laughs> the, the pace of it, it, it really is. If you've never done it, that is a fantastic thing to do at a golf tournament. I, I, I did that at the Australian a couple of years ago at an Australian Open. It's so, so, it's so slow, isn't it? Yeah, they, you, you see this thing, and it's like. How did he hit that three hundred? Yeah. It just popped up there, and then the hands emerge at the top, yeah, above just, all the heads, yeah, oh, yeah. and then the club so, appears. Yeah, exactly. At the end of the you've swing. heard a sound in the middle. You've and heard a sound, the ball. and then the ball soaring away. And that was in the <laughs> days of Jordan Spieth not being as good a ball striker as he is now. He's a very effective ball striker, mm, but player. not as good striker as he is now. And I remember watching the hands up, and I've seen enough of him. I could see from his hand path at the top that it was him. I knew who it was based off where it was. And That's then, deep in golf nerdery. Though. And the sound, I was just like, I've played that hole a lot, <laughs> and I heard that sound, and I went, I know where that's going, and it ain't good. And then watched the flight of the ball and went, that's better than I thought. And I walked away with an appreciation from that tee shot going, well, maybe that's not as bad a strike as I think it is because that's how he's doing it. Followed him around for the next couple of holes and went, Went away with a different appreciation of how his this game works. Right. This kid's all right. This kid's all right. He, <laughs> he might have a future. Somewhere. He could yeah. do something. I could show him a few things. But yeah, yeah. But that, and I think for me, I've spent a lot of my life at professional golf tournaments. I still get those moments by experiencing things in that different way. Standing back, not seeing impact, not taking advantage of being able to get to the front and watch it, listening and, and taking that in. And so for everyone from someone who's never been to someone who's been to 100 tournaments, you're going to see something. This is the thing about golf, isn't it? There's always something. It's just never – we've got um, Jackie Newton and Cashier on the thing about golf this week. Mm. I was talking to Jackie about the 1975 Open. Tom Watson hooked his tee shot off the 14th of the par three. Hits a strand of wire, literally a strand of wire. Was that two millimetres? And bounces back in. What other sport does that sort of crazy yeah. thing happen? You know, it's like it's off the charts at a major. And anyway, so it's burned in my memory from as a child sitting on the range at the lakes and watching Roger Davis in his plus fours hit long irons. Burned in my brain, and uh, you know, darts in between. Yeah, absolutely. Drop the dart. It was. It was just you know. Iconic. It was all part of the pre-shot routine, wasn't it? The dart would go down. <laughs> the setup would Important take place. to note that Roger's a much healthier man, yes, doesn't he smoke is. these days, but no. Roger Davis, in my opinion, was the greatest golf smoker of all time. <laughs> had it had the whole routine done better and would get up over the driver and still have it, give it, you know, the covered smoke, throw it on the ground, hit it. When the camera came back to him watching the flight, it was back in his mouth. It was like unbelievable. He was an eye smoker, David. Correct. His eyes would be part of the smoking theatre. They were all part of the whole show. It was like the no-look pick-up of a tee. He could do it like... Yeah, well, yeah. It was, there was, he's, he's doing the no-look pick-up of the... And I'm the sure dart. the tee as well. Yeah. It was, yeah, was theatre. It's not, with not an endorsement of... No. Of <laughs> what do you do? Just don't smoke <laughs> as you... By our say. man, Clate's wearing the quit smoking uh, visor at one summer, oh, yeah. even though he didn't smoke. 
Oh. Had a sponsorship from Quit Victoria or whatever, and do anything didn't smoke. for money, Clades. Absolutely, anything. anything. <laughs> With the uh, well, Clades, of course, Clades was always the the zinc, the zinc on the the lid. You know, I still never seen anybody else do it. That's <laughs> how to- that's how we knew the Sandbelt Invitational last year was ready to go on day one when Clates came out at Kingston Heath, having freshly zinked his bottom <laughs> lip. I was like, we're on here. This is we've got something if, happening here. If you get the chance to go to the Sandbelt Invitational, do that. That, that is, is, yeah. That yeah. is uh, that is a fair. That, in ten or fifteen years, it's going to be something to say I was at the first one. Yeah, you, you you'll want to have been a part of it. I think I've um, exhausted all my topics. I think we touched on some interesting stuff. Yeah. If anybody's left, thanks for joining us, Logue. Thank you, mate. Thank you, Rod. Most enjoyable. I will make sure to avoid Tommy's honour based on your recommendation. But I do look forward to reading the full review. I've only seen that one line. Okay. So far, Jimmy. Thank you, mate. Good to have you along. Thank you. And I've read the review and I can endorse it's very good. Have you seen the movie? No. <laughs> you go- Are you going to now? No, that's why we pay load to. <laughs> <laughs> well, he gets the big bucks. Uh, I have done neither of those things, so uh, I'm in the perfect position to make a judgment. That's it for episode 120. We'll be back next week with more here on the Good Good Golf Podcast. <laughs>